Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm Josephine Taylor, an Associate Editor at Westerly, an Adjunct Senior Lecturer in Writing at Edith Cowan University, and my debut novel is Eye of a Rook, published by Fremantle Press in 2021. I'm speaking from Wajak Noongar Hujja, where I live and work and where sovereignty was never ceded. I'd like to offer my gratitude for Noongar custodianship of this country and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. And today I'm really thrilled to be in conversation with Paul Dalgano about our debut novels, Polly and Ivarook, crisscrossing themes and ideas, writing processes and what's on our plates for the future. So to introduce Paul, Paul Dalgano is an author and journalist who has written for many publications including Guardian Australia, Australian Book Review, Sunday Times Scotland, Penthouse, Arts Hub and The Big Issue. His creative non-fiction memoir, And You May Find Yourself, was published in 2015 by Sleepers Publishing and his debut novel, Polly, was published in 2020 by Ventura Press. Among other things, he's currently working on a creative non-fiction manuscript called Crudish Nation for Upswell Publishing and I'm really looking forward to talking to him about that. Hi, Paul. Hi, Josephine. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Um, I, I guess a natural way, like people might have heard us in other forums, um, or they might not have. So I thought a, a great way of starting our conversation was perhaps just to, to talk briefly about our books so people know what we're actually talking about. So okay. can you give a brief description about uh, Polly? Yeah, no worries. Um, so probably the briefest description I can give is that uh, Polly is a novel about a couple with young children who open up their marriage to polyamory or non-monogamy, basically seeing other people um, unaware that one of the people they invite into their lives um, has a personality disorder, which may or may not be sociopathy. Ah, that's cool, because that's, I think, the first time where you've 
I've heard you sort of highlight that element of the book, and I wasn't sure whether we could talk about about um, uh, Zach Batista. Is that how you pronounce yeah. his name? Yeah. 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 So that that's great. He's such a fascinating character. Um, so my book, I Have a Rook, is um, deals with two women, um, one in contemporary Perth and the other in Victorian England, who both develop an inexplicable gynaecological pain, and uh, the the narratives interweave and uh, interconnected in ways that we find out during the book. So, um, yeah, that's that's a very, very brief description. So we'll start with mm. that. Yeah. Um, but, but maybe just to, to plunge straight in then about what, what our books are about. Um, so what, what do we, I think, I've heard you talking um, in online events. I think you said at one point that um, you hadn't seen or found polyamory dealt with in fiction before. So perhaps we could talk about that. What do we tackle in our books mm. that has been previously unwritable in fiction? Yeah, um, I mean, polyamory does creep up in books. Um, it increasingly actually is creeping up in TV, which I think is is the um, the canary in the coal mine. So it's, it's the quickest one off the blocks, TV first and then film and then novels probably, uh, or novels and film, whichever way it works. Um, but it, it kind of does crop up in strange places and fantasy novels uh, quite often, or sorry, science fiction on different planets. There are people who... Um, you know, are in relationships with multiple people simultaneously. Um, but um, it, yeah, it's not something, it's something where I'd seen it previously in books um, was more in the sense of essentially how-to guides or ethical kind of non nonfiction books, almost all of which are American and have a very American sensibility, um, essentially trying to normalise um that that kind of relationship style or a series of relationship styles of seeing uh or being involved with more than one person concurrently so um beyond that what i hadn't really seen was that then being problematized so adding drama onto that and um there, there are um some kind of key concepts i guess in polyamory that are on those kind of books and websites Things like, you know, uh, communication is absolutely vital. So clear communication, trust is absolutely vital. There, there, there's almost uh, like a list of commandments of things that need to be in place for these types of relationships to work. So um, obviously with books being driven more by, by drama, what I, it, it wasn't as systematic as this, but what my book is essentially doing is making all those things go wrong. So the communication goes wrong, the trust goes out the window, um, you know, and it, it, even though I, I think the, the people in the book are good in the sense they're trying to do their best, they um, they they kind of make a bit of a mess when reality meets the theory of what it is they should be doing. Um, so yeah, that that's mine. And in, in yours, I mean, hopefully you're going to speak to this, but um, there's the, uh, a condition there, vulvodynia, which I'm thinking that's that's pronounced right. That's exactly um, right. Uh, which certainly I haven't seen anywhere else, um, and hadn't even heard of, to be honest, until um, in the run up to your book, having heard a little bit about it from you, and then reading your book, obviously. So I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about how. Um, you know how, how you found uh, 
were you writing into a blank space there or was there stuff there to go mm. off of? There's, yeah, it's so interesting because there are a lot of parallels between our experience here because um, certainly there was quite a lot of self-help material out there, informational and self-help material since I guess sort of 2000-ish onwards. Before then it really wasn't sort of known very much. Um, and it's kind of crazy that people haven't heard about Volvodynia because the incidence rate is so high. It's um, somewhere between uh, 10 and 28% in all women will have some form of chronic um, unexplained um, vulval pain at some point during their lives. And so I, I was really, and because I developed this condition myself, I was really sort of incensed by this ridiculous disparity because it seemed to me to be really inefficient, if nothing, you know, nothing else apart from a whole stack of other things like really potentially harmful for women who are not going to get the right treatment, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I did actually originally write an investigative memoir on it um, as my mm. PhD thesis, and it was a very big sort of bulky thing which crossed a whole stack of um, disciplines, I guess, and... Uh, in the end, seemed to be not not a great not great to publish as it was. I would have had to do some work on it. So instead, what I ended up doing was um, publishing um, personal essays drawn from the thesis, which I'm continuing to do. And then uh, spontaneously, I started writing fiction. I actually hadn't planned to. Um, it just literally came in a writing workshop one day, and before I knew it, I was writing a short story and then a novel. So. Like yours, I think um, I'm really, really, I find that fascinating, the science fiction thing. I think it, it's like, and I agree that um, that there seems to be this kind of slow progression of something into collective consciousness uh, sort of through, yeah, self-help, information or so on. Um, but in I don't, I haven't seen Bob Virginia in science fiction, but it makes sense that polyamory would be there because it's like um, a way to kind of explore sort of forbidden desires, I guess, or that mm. kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, for me, I think um, in Ivorook it was a great way to be able to create a narrative that drew from my drew on my own experience but wasn't me, um, and that gave a tremendous amount of freedom in how I wrote it. And I think also it meant that I could bring in things which weren't related to vulvodynia to, to do with, you know, what do you do when you're um, struck with something that completely, you know, wrecks your life as you know it? How do you respond to that? How do the people in your life respond to that? Um, which I think that, that you do in Polly as well. I think, you know, how, how the people in, in their lives um, respond, Sarah, and um uh, I was going to say Paul, uh, Chris's lives um, respond to what's going on to them. So, I mean, it's really nice to be able to explore, create a universe around it. And, and I wonder, um, you know, I, I mean, that, that statistic is higher than I would have imagined. I think 10 to 28%, you said, of uh, women will experience this type of pain. Is it... Um, and I think this is a leading question. I think the answer is going to be yes, having read your book, but it is that um, connected to the fact that it's a problem affecting women as opposed to uh, affecting men, do you think? As in, so, as in, if there was an issue affecting 30% of men, would we know more about it? 
Yeah. So the interesting thing is that it does affect men. So I was going to bring this up too, which is really, it's obviously not called vulvodynia if you don't have a vulva, but um, it's called other things. Mm. So it might be called non-bacterial prostatitis, for instance. Um, I think it was it John Anderson, who was our deputy PM at one point, um, who, who resigned. And that was one of the reasons he gave for resigning was sitting and, and not being able to sit comfortably and so on. Um, so I think that one thing I was really interested in talking about is, is how these kinds of um, things in our lives aren't necessarily pinnable to, to gender or, mm. um, yeah, so this kind of pain can be experienced by anybody of whatever gender or between gender yeah. or wherever you might be. But I, I do think that um, I don't know the statistics for men, but I suspect that they're a lot higher for women um, with men, it seems to be a lot to do with um, pudendal neuralgia when the nerve there is affected or an impact. I think women have more kind of bits there that can be affected, mucous membranes and so on, and everything comes together in one spot. But I don't know that for sure. But I think the reason, part of the reason, so part of the reason I think it hasn't been talked about, hasn't been known is because of the history of hysteria um, the history of Freud and that whole thing of if there's something that you can't fix, um, it comes from some kind of psychological complex, putting it incredibly simply. Um, and so the onus lies on you as the person. There's something wrong. You, you know, you must be getting some kind of secondary gain from having this condition. Um, you must be somehow attached to it. Um, there are things that you haven't kind of perhaps some kind of background of um, infantile desire or abuse that hasn't been addressed. And while I think that's quite possibly the case for many women, I think, well, it's not that I think I know because I've had contact with many, many, many people and many men as well, um, that it's not necessarily the case. This can come out of the blue and really have no psychological precursors. But nevertheless, we've kind of got that freighted history. And I think, too, because um, it's in that part of the body, uh, sex, and so it straight away becomes, oh, you know, we, there's shame, we can't talk about There's pain there, you know, you're not meant to have pain there, we can't talk about this. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a whole problem, obviously, like um, I've, I've said before to other people that, you know, if you had um, headaches all the time, would somebody say you had a thinking disorder or if you yeah. had kind of persistent kind of plantar warts on your feet, would somebody say you had a walking disorder? It's um, Yeah, because I guess, I guess the implication um, by, by um, saying it's a psychological issue, the implication seems to be that you should get over it. So in a sense, the, the shame... Uh, as you're saying, involved in where it is in the body and, you know, the, the kind of symbolism of that is compounded by the shame of essentially, you know, that this is down to you. I, I know you're saying there's pain there and it's not that I don't believe you, but kind of you're, you're responsible for this in a way. That, that seems to be the, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, this still comes out. I'm still um, have contact or, you know, on, uh, see on Facebook groups, we still have new people joining a group saying, oh, I've been told that it's all in my head or psychological um, or I've been made to feel. I mean, so many things that have been told, like, you know, you need, need to get a hobby, 
um, you need to loosen up a bit more, maybe drink a bit of, you know, alcohol. I mean, there, there are some suggestions which are actually not necessarily bad in themselves, like maybe it might help to, to have a drink before sex, you know, that might help. But I think the implication that you're kind of um, looking at there, which is that, yes, the the, um, the onus is upon you. Um, there are things that you need to do in order to get over this thing is really problematic in the sense that it's it's kind of not right really necessarily, um, but also it, as, as you say, kind of doubles that sense of shame. Um, and I feel particularly, I mean, I feel for anyone of any age or, or sex, gender with this, but I really feel for young women um, particularly who are really starting to find their sexuality and have these kind of all of this kind of messaging going on at a time when you're already dealing with about with the boundaries of your body and how much you want to open them and the kinds of things you're talking about do communication and trust and so on, uh, which are then just really it adds so much yeah to that any kind of negotiation you might have with a, a potential partner. Complex. Um, and I guess, you know, pain is one of those strange things that we can't really, I mean, we can empathise with each other if somebody says something's a, an eight on the pain scale, but we can't feel it. I mean, we can't even feel our own pain once it's gone, you know, it just becomes very quickly. I think it fades into, I don't know, an intellectual memory that, that you had pain that time you dropped an anvil on your foot or whatever the, the situation is. It, it, it's not really easy to package up and pass on to uh, people. And I, I think one of the things you do very well in Ayavaruk is get to a kind of um, a description, a workable description where, where you can, you are actually communicating this condition. But um, that I can only imagine has come through a lot of craft, a lot of thinking, a lot of talking to people. Um, for everyone else, the rest of us, basically, we we don't have that. We have the whatever that scale is, the one to ten pain scale. We basically have that, and even then, we don't really know if somebody else's eight is one of our eights or really their three is our eight or vice versa. That's right. It's an entirely um, subjective scale. And there's also that um, difference between acute pain and chronic pain as well, that they're both very different beasts as well. As you say, you drop an anvil on your foot, that's, you know, that acute pain. With chronic pain, it can become a disorder in its own right so that you end up with a central sensitisation where the brain is basically can't forget the pain, even though that there might actually no longer be reason for the pain, possibly, um, so that it becomes a, a thing in itself. And I'm actually really interested in this too because um, that was one of the things I wanted to talk with you about was um, I remember at um, a talk that I went to with uh, uh, Lee Kaufman was talking with Emily Paul about her book um, and she, she said, beauty is a wild thing. And it really struck me and it stayed with me, um, this whole thing about how we pin uh, thoughts and feelings to objects. So like with pain, as you're saying, we kind of, you can't grasp it unless you've got it. It's a bit, it's a wild thing. For a start, it kind of, it, it comes and it goes and it can happen in body parts that make no sense, particularly if it's a kind of, supposed kind of conversion disorder or hysterical disorder 
um, as they used to be called, or if it's, as we see more now, a neurological disorder where the brain isn't functioning correctly or it's, it's giving you the message that you have pain there where you possibly shouldn't, so it's more of a brain disorder. Um, but I also thought in my, my writing too uh, and in my research around vulvodynia that desire is, is a wild thing as well, that, again, we pin it to, to objects, but it seems to me that it's, you know, we have this idea that if you're having, certainly in the past, normative heterosexual sex, that's, that's the be-all and end-all, <clears throat> excuse me, that's desire and that's desire fulfilled. But my characters are kind of forced to have no sex for, for some time and yours have lots of sex, but is there any differences in satisfaction? And, and, and so that I've, I've put the question here, what, what kind of hole are we trying to fill? Um, well, first of all, I think it's uh, that, that concept of desire um, and trying to pin it to something's really interesting um, and you know, in a way, we don't think we have to pin it to something when, when we feel it, a bit like pain, I guess, to, to um, continue on that theme. It just feels eternal. There, there is no tomorrow in the moment of feeling it, um, which um, sadly, in a lot of ways, is the, the story of most long-term relationships. So um, it's just inconceivable. I mean, you could, you could walk into any, I don't know, Valentine's Day dinner with young lovers and tell them, like, You'll have heard this before, but if you stay together, the truth is you will, you'll get pretty bored of each other eventually. And, you know, that desire you're feeling now, it, it will just die out. You know, it'll, it'll, you won't be an undesirous person. You just won't feel the same way about each other. And, and it would be as hard to believe for them as it is. It would have been for me at that age or at that, at that kind of stage of uh, relationships. So um, in a way, we, we do pin desire to, to people, but the desire itself doesn't stay there. It's kind of like, I don't know, we stick it on with bad Velcro or a blue tack or something. <laughs> and so, sooner or later, that's going to fall off. And um, wh while I was researching Polly, you know, the, the main couple in it, Chris and Sarah, um, are in a sexless marriage. And, and when I kind of looked up and read a bit about sexless marriages, is defined as having sex less than or, or fewer than um, 12 times a year with your uh, partner. And, you know, I, I, I don't pry too much into uh, people's lives, but I'm pretty sure there are quite a few people I know uh, in long-term relationships that would be happy to have sex 12 times a year with their partner. Uh, that, that to them wouldn't be a sexless marriage or sexless partnership. That would actually be a pretty good innings. It's like once a month on average. Um, so I, I, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a kind of strange battle that we have throughout life that we're desirous beings. We also desire long-term partnerships, uh, often, uh, not always, but lots of people do. Uh, and yet this, this thing called desire is, is floating around essentially like a butterfly that can just land on somebody else's shoulder at any time. Um, which then, of course, puts you in a situation where you either kind of turn away quickly and deny that that's happening, or potentially, in the case of something like polyamory, um, somehow try and negotiate what is going to become a, a very, just by its nature, complicated situation if you 
and the, the person with the butterfly on their shoulder uh, also want to pursue something and you also want to maintain what you already have with with someone else yeah. um which is not to say i mean um and i need to be careful about this but polyamory isn't a married couple that open up their marriage i mean there are lots of people who aren't married never want to get married etc there's there's a million different ways to um i guess be ethically non-monogamous but certainly in the in the book that um that kind of crash between a, a lack of desire in a marriage, trying to um, act upon the desire that's still there within the individuals and keep the union together is, is the kind of driver for that story and that investigation. Mm, it's so interesting. I think that so what, what you're saying really is that this desire is happening for all of us. But in polyamory, it's it's a decision. So instead of making that decision, yes, the desire's there, I'll turn away from it. It's saying, yes, the desire's there, I will turn towards it and see if we can negotiate all of this and live all of this. And certainly in poly, that kind of creates a lot of the... Um, it, it's such a, a funny book, I have to say, too. I just laugh out loud. It, you know, I just read it again for the second time. There's so many great spots. But... Um, it's, it leads to a lot of chaos. Uh, I, was, I was wondering too, though, with that, the desire, and uh, it seems to me in Polly that you, you um, explicitly link that to mortality. So I was wondering what that, what, what's going on with that in Polly? Yeah, um, well, there's a number of deaths in Polly, so grief is kind of... Uh, riddled throughout the book um the the um the driver essentially of the whole story is that sarah the wife has had a um long-term love interest that's bubbled along in the background without being acted upon who um has uh, suicided um a year or two before the events in the book starts um chris the narrator his mother's just died a year before and Biddy and um, Chris's uh, partner um, her brother suicided, I think, seven years before the start of the book. So grief is, is very explicitly there in the book. Um, and to me, um, I guess, as the writer, that really comes down to the idea that um, the, the, this same idea of, you know, a kind of life force or desire that we all have is going to run out. I mean, you know, whether whether we like it or not, obviously uh, we, we all know this, uh, the road comes to an end, we come to an end. So I think in my mind when, when I was writing it and uh, also living my life, there is a, a kind of sense of mortality hanging over every one of us and a real um, sadness in a way that we sometimes find ourselves in situations where we can't really express who we are in, in whatever way that is through um, a sense of loyalty to others that in and of itself is, you know, noble and beautiful and all the rest of it, but actually denies us um, a, a broader range of experiences in the, you know, 25 seconds or whatever we get to live in between vast eternities of um, kind of dark matter. So, yeah, for, for me, for whatever reason, those those things are linked to a, a sense of wanting to live, um, which is lit 
all the more brightly by the fact that the backdrop is is black you know it's, mm. it's a spotlight on a black background mm. i guess too that you could say well mortality is beyond us is, is universal it's always been there whereas a lot of the kind of conditions that we create around desire are societally driven so if you have um mortality pressing upon you then perhaps you're more likely to think in those kinds of you know well um where does my ethical self lie is it is it still within the kinds of structures that are deemed to be normal within society or am i just going to say yes because you know life is very short and what is it all about anyway yeah yeah what is it all about mm. um, yeah i think that's right and you know um there are different ways that ethics can be um, I, th I think ethics actually are pretty um, stock standard across across the world. I think there, there's almost a universal ethics. There's, as far as I know, not any culture that believes killing other people's right. And, you know, the, the various the, uh, commandments, if you like, they're pretty equal across society. But um, I think the, the kind of evil twin in a way of ethics is morals. So um, I, I, on my, in my personal opinion, living an ethical life, what feels ethical to you is just better for you. you you'll feel better within yourself if you feel you're um, not being unethical in your life. But morals are a slightly different thing and they, they change all the time. Um, hence the fact we get lots of scandals uh, appearing about things that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because things were, you know, considered normal, you know, putting your having your child taken away and put into, um, I don't know, a nunnery in Ireland at, at one point in history was, you know, morally the right thing to do. But, um, sorry, there's, there's a really bad analogy, but ethically we, we see as, as inquiries come out and uh, horrible stories are uncovered about what actually went on. Um, there's, there's clearly been ethical issues beyond the, um, the kind of moral guiding force of, of any given era. Mm. We seem to be in a very morally, a really rapidly changing time too. Uh, I was thinking in, in um, Polly too about that the whole, a lot of what drives the, the narratives is that disjunct between what um, Chris thinks and, and how he acts. And I remember listening to a recording, I think, uh, with, with Helen Garner. I think it was the Adelaide Festival back in the 80s. And she was talking about how with um, Monkey Grip there was this kind of a sort of, I um, can't think of the word, like the program was that you had said, you know, you, we're free, we're all free and it's all great and, you know, what's the problem, um, you know, and, yes, I love him and, yes, you know, so there was this kind of program in the, the culture that she was embedded within or, or that her character in Monkey Grip was embedded in. But the reality was that that was, as she expressed, it was quite destructive because you're kind of um, turning away from your own instincts at times or your sort of um, your, your feelings at least. It, and there's that great disjunct between, between what Chris thinks and how he acts. I think there's, there's a little bit on page eight um, that, says, I was a small L liberal, well-versed in the theoretical underpinnings of ethical non-monogamy, impervious to otherwise universal manifestations of human frailty. 
which I think was is lovely. And going through the, the whole book is this whole thing about how sweet they are and how lovely they try to be to each other. Like Sarah just is constantly hun, hun and spunky yeah. um, and all this kind of thing. Um, and at the same time, there are all these, well, certainly with Crystal, these murderous impulses at times uh, and a lot of unvoiced hostility, a lot of sort of unvoiced anything. Uh, at one point he says, you know, moderate them vows, hide them feels, uh, that you're constantly dampening down. Uh, I don't. I actually don't have a question there, but perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I am. Um, there's something that I, I can never pronounce um, that's very prevalent in Scottish literature called Caledonian anti-sizzage. Anti-sizzage. I don't know. I think that's how you say it. I always want to say sausage sizzle, but it's not that. <laughs> um, and the idea is this idea of a duality within a single person. So a um, very famous example is um, Jekyll and Hyde. Or uh, there's another one from the, the 19th century as well called Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by a writer called James Hogg, in which you have this kind of warring faction within uh, one person that allows you to essentially see the, the, the kind of um, socially acceptable version of a person and the completely uh, cut adrift morally version uh, of a person and um, I think to a degree those things do exist so to, to go back to what I was saying about the, the theory of polyamory versus the reality in the I, I, I don't know how many articles I've read explaining why jealousy is just a um, you know it's just an emotion that passes and you um, basically you can train it not to happen um, but I've never even though I know that, and I, I could uh, almost recite it paragraph by paragraph from things that I've read, it makes absolutely no difference when you, you know, it, it's basically like somebody saying, electricity is just, you know, a force, don't worry about it. Um, so put your finger in that socket and whatever happens, just don't worry about it. It will pass. You, you'll probably fry for a few minutes, but then you'll be, you'll be okay again. So um, I, I think that's definitely something Chris in the book is um, kind of trying to come to terms with really not knowing the theory, as you said, in that great um, kind of story about Helen Garner there, knowing knowing what you're supposed to do and still feeling a bit like a, um, was it a square peg in a round hole um, is, is definitely a challenge which opens up lots of areas for humor as well because um, I, I just think it's inherently funny when somebody's trying to do the right thing and uh, doing the right thing is extremely stressful for them as well. Um, so um, Josephine to, to go back just a couple of steps because I meant to ask at the time I, I think we just moved on from there that the um, the question you asked about desire and how it floats around and how we pin that to objects. Um, I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that in the context of Eye of a Rook. And then maybe if you, if you feel happy, kind of flowing on from there, um, this idea that we also talked about of uh, morals changing and society in a way changing, I'd, I'd love to hear how that uh, has kind of played into your book with its dual timeline, so one in uh, Victorian era London and one in contemporary Perth, Australia. Mm, sure. So the, the desire side of things, well, for a start, it was really important to me that both women, 
Um, we see them before they develop vulvodynia and that both are very, very passionate, have very sort of full um, sexual lives, um, are full of desire for their partner. I think that um, Alice and Duncan, who are in the contemporary timeline, their, their, their desire, their sexuality is slightly more problematic because there are kind of tensions already there. Whereas with um, Arthur and Emily in Victorian England, uh, they're newly married. Their, their kind of progression to that point um, has been very straightforward. They've, they've met, they just have lusted for each other um, as part of falling in love, you know, whether you can separate those two things at that point. They've, they're now married and they're having this wonderful time. Um, so that was really important to me because... I think that there, that there has been this sort of ongoing idea that there is some kind of sexual dysfunction with vulvodynia. So I really wanted to kind of get, kind of scotch that idea a bit. Um, and this is also when we go back to individuals, not to say that there aren't individuals who that isn't the case for, but I'd, I'd be very, I'm really, I think we've gone too far the other way. So I wanted to kind of redress that balance a bit and also I guess go from my own experience, what I knew. Um, so that was important. But then when, um, when the vulvodynia develops in both cases, the, the pain is so unrelenting that it really forces both women to completely lose everything in their lives, um, which is, is what happened to me. And I should say, too, that, that vulvodynia can be a very, along a very long sort of continuum right through to just sort of discomfort during intercourse or tampon insertion or whatever. So it's got a really big scale, it's not necessarily as severe as um, the women in Ivarook experience it. Um, but so, yeah, what happens then? Well, pain kind of knocks everything out for a while, but desire never goes away, really. Um, and so once there is even slight improvements or once the pain or the kind of stuckedness of things have been there long enough, then desire is going to come back. But I think for me, what I've learned through my own experience is that desire isn't isn't um, completely just a, there's not a marriage between desire and, and sex. And so desire can be experienced in a whole stack of ways, including in, in you know, the, the, the uh, relationship with the world, with other people, ideas and so on. Um, and I was really interested in what Alice would do. Um, I think it's harder for Emily. She's in Victorian England, so she's kind of a little bit more stymied in how she can express her independence, her, her kind of intelligence. Whereas with Alice, she, like me, begins to research and write about her experience. So in many ways, her desire becomes, I mean, they, they do eventually, um, don't think it's too much of a spoiler, but, you know, they kind of eventually are having intercourse again, which Duncan's, you know, thrilled about. Uh, but for her, her, she's changed during that process and that isn't kind of fully it for her now. She, you know, she's become a different person. So in many ways the desire for her goes into becoming a different person and finding something else in life and in creativity. So creativity, as you know, from reading it is a really powerful kind of element in the book um, and for me is a really crucial part of how we respond to um when we have prolonged suffering in our lives, you know, obviously you've got to go through the, the dark shit first. You, there's no two ways about that. But at some point then you have to kind of engage and eventually 
Alice engages and then kind of finds something new. Um, yeah, in terms of the morals, it, it's really interesting because when I researched the history of oval pain and of hysteria, I saw, you know, that not a lot really had changed over the, the centuries. Um, so there's, there's some things that are very different between Emily's and Alice's experience. So Alice, for instance, can join a support group. She can talk freely. You know, they can talk about dicks and they can talk about, you know, whatever they want to talk about. Um, whereas, obviously, for Emily, she's very, very hamstrung in terms of who and what she can speak about. And I think, too, there's this whole idea of ideas shrinking to the words that you have for them. At that point, they only had hysteria, and that was it. And hysteria were just sort of covered so much, um, and nobody really knew exactly what it was, where at least Alice is coming up with all of these terms, you know, interstitial cystitis and irritable bowel and fibromyalgia and so on. So she can, she's got a language that she can use. But on the other hand, there are other things that haven't changed. And so morally, it's kind of still not okay to be... Um, vocal and in the world and saying oh this is the issue and it's actually not my fault it's just a problem we need to do something about so you would expect that you know between 18 the 1860s and 2010-ish that you know that so much would have changed and it's really interesting when Alice looks sort of researches the history she's sort of as I did obviously her research has kind of come from my research that there were early gynaecologists who actually really described vulvodynia in very accurate and sympathetic ways. And then it sort of got derailed um, by Freud, primarily the influence of Freud. And, you know, uh, again, I, um, it's obvious that there's a great deal that Freud contributed, and I've written a lot about Freud, uh, but there are some elements that are really harmful for vulvodynia. So it kind of disappeared for decades and then when it started to crop up again in medical um, journal articles in the 60s and 70s, it was in psychoanalytic terms and it was all about the women having secondary defence mechanisms and um, getting secondary gains and she can't confront the thing, you know, because that would mean she'd have to have sex with her husband. So, it was, so I think that, that morally in some very important ways there hasn't been a change and that's the thing that really needs to change. I think ethically the individuals go through these very powerful experiences and they find ways to be themselves within a society, but morally there hasn't been the kind of changes you would like. Yeah, um, yeah I think Victorian society and sexuality is endlessly fascinating and, and always will be. It's just... Um, what, from what I've read or seen, just an absolute uh, mix of um, crazy kind of liberal attitudes towards some elements of um, bodies and sexuality, uh, some really weird, creepy stuff around uh, photography. Uh, I was reading recently about hidden mothers and um, in Victorian portraiture where the mums were hidden by a kind of blanket so that they could hold their kids still during the photos and of course you can still see they're there they just look really creepy um and then over and above that kind of um liberalness in a way uh, this this really harsh uh, 
thing that we still refer to however many years later of Victorian morals and Victorian ideals and a kind of stiff upper lip and things. Um, so, I mean, from what you were saying, it kind of made me think that um, this uh, issue or this condition kind of rose to the surface just long enough to then get bobbed back down again. And it's it's just coming back up now, but yeah. it, it's coming back up still with those things attached to it, the, the morals from, you know, 19th century and, and, and some of the um, strange, seemingly really dated opinions on, on that. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of, of thinking about it. I think, you know, it's, it's, I sometimes describe it as it's been a bit of a cul-de-sac, so we're kind of back where we were then. But at least, you know, we can talk about we can have these conversations, we can now write our novels and we can bring these things into, into the collective consciousness and, and sort of, I guess, create stories from them because it seems to me that's the important thing too is you can, I, I think self-help books are really important, memoirs are really important, I, I like writing memoir myself, but there's something also about creating a universe that has these things within them that's profoundly um, satisfying. Um, and I'm just looking looking here too. I think we, we're going to need to finish soon, but I, I really wanted to know what are you working on now and what does the future hold for you? Um, yeah, I'm working on a couple of things, Josephine. So one that I've been working on for the past, um, you know, I, I lost my job, as we were saying just before we came on, uh, one of many people to work at a university and lose their job. And for whatever uh, mental health or self-defense reason I interpreted that as I can now write full-time until I run out of money which will be very soon and um, so one of the things uh, well the, the thing I've been working on is a novel um, about uh, a woman having a post-life crisis so she's kind of beyond the grave and she's trying to work out what it is in her life that she's revisiting that is actually holding her up from moving on and um, so I've been in a dream with that I've been writing like um, 10 11 hours a day for six days a week for since the start of September and I'm completely um, frazzled but excited and really feel fluent in my writing and excited about what I'm doing um, and then um, one of the reasons I have, I'm putting myself under pressure to get that one to a state where I can hopefully send it to my agent for, for a look is because I'm then going to be moving on to um, a creative non-fiction book um, tentatively titled Prudish Nation for Upswell Publishing. So um, that's really um, an exploration of um, contemporary relationships and what we consider orthodox or what we consider alternative, uh, what we consider a bit weird um, and how all of that affects how we feel about ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I'm equally looking forward to getting stuck into that and yeah. um, a bit obsessive over the next few months on it. So kind of a lot of the things we've been talking about. Uh, quite a lot of those things, yeah, which, which I do find um, fascinating. And, and what about you? What are you working on? Well, that's really funny. We're kind of sort of parallels, a lot of parallels. I'm, I'm just a, beginning a novel um, which is um, the primary character seems to be uh, a gene detective in the future and um, <laughs> she, she's decided that's yeah. what she, you know yeah and um, she's uh, it, it's to do with trauma in a family over generations and I'm not sure exactly what she's doing yet but <laughs> she's doing some kind of she's, detective she's detecting yeah. just detecting and she's uh, going she? to dreams into the, the other characters dreams things like that so it's it's 
a bit like yours in the sense that it's definitely very different to what I've written. Yeah. I'm sure there will be some thematic kind of carryover. Um, and then the other thing is uh, a, a collection of personal essays, which I've kind of had probably five or six published now, I think, and I have a few that haven't been published. I'd, I'd love to get the whole thing published, so we'll see. I'll keep writing the personal essays and um, mm. hopefully that will that will happen. Um, so, yeah, they're all basically looking through the lens, looking at things through the lens of Volvodinia. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so, so not dissimilar. So, yeah, Thanks. exciting times. Yeah, that is exciting. And it's good to be busy, as they say. It is. And then there is the final question. Oh, and actually, before I forget to, there was the name of the book that I remembered, which was Lee Kaufman's Imperfect, which was uh, yeah, okay. yeah. is a, is a wild yeah. thing. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, the final question that is usually asked on this podcast is why do you write? Um, well, it's a good question, and I think I'm not going to give that good an answer simply because I'm lucky enough to have been on Danny's podcast before, and uh, when she asked me this question as uh, with Danny's particular brand of uh, dark magic, I couldn't stop speaking for about 10 minutes answering the question. So I won't, I'll maybe just refer people to that episode if they ever want to, to hear that. Um, but the very short version is uh, I had an inspirational English teacher when I went back to do a night class, uh, having left school at 14 and then going back to it. Um, but yeah, as I say, um, Danny's already kind of uh, what's the word emptied that well got all that pull, information pull that out of you and um, I remember listening to that episode and it was fascinating and the whole thing about you coming to reading and everything quite late that you really yeah, yeah it was it was really fascinating um, why, why do you write oh look yeah no I thought about this a bit too I think um I write to create myself I think um and I'm not really sure what I mean by that but I mean I write to make sense of things but it seems to me like writing is this great sort of feedback loop where you're also kind of creating yourself as you're writing um sort of changing yourself you become a different person I think we kind of think about creating a world but we I don't know for me the world affects me as well so I kind of create myself Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah, I like that idea so uh, literally putting yourself on the page or, yeah, yeah. Or taking like, yourself from the page. Yeah, I guess so. Just and not knowing as well. You don't know what mm. you're going to become, what the book's going to become, what you're going to become as a result of writing this book. And I really quite like that process. I, I had Jungian analysis for bloody decades, and it reminds mm. me of that, of being in that kind of really depth, kind of working with dreams and so on, that kind yeah. of process. And you, as you say, you kind of literally don't know. You, you kind of think you almost can kind of convince yourself that you do know what's yeah. going to happen and that you're <laughs> yeah. only pretending that you don't know, but then you find out that you actually didn't yeah, know. Didn't so, know. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's great. I love it. Okay. Well, that was fantastic. Thanks so much, Paul. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Me too. Me too. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Danny V Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.